Hello, this is The Game Podcast from The Times and I'm Natalie Sawyer. Joining me today, it is Tom Clark and Tom Roddy. Lovely to have two Toms on. So what we're going to do is, just to establish some ground rules, shall we go with Tom Clark, your northern Tom? Does that work for you? Yeah, that works for me, definitely. I think that's what we've reverted to before on the pod. Yes. So let's let's keep keep with that formation and tactic for now. <laughs> it's It's been a winning formula. Why would we Absolutely. want to change it? Um, so is it going to just be regular Tom or should I just go for Tom for you, Tom Roddy? Uh, I think I think we'll stick with Tom. Tom. <laughs> yep. Sounds good to me. How are you, Tom? Yeah, really well. Thanks yourself. Yes, I am very, very well. Thank you. Really good. Thank you. How about you, Northern Tom? I'm okay now. I'm not. Um, the only slight downside with today's show is that I had a rather big lunch, and then had oh. that thing where you feel really, really tired after eating too much. So I then had an espresso. So that was about <laughs> twenty twenty minutes before the show started. So if you hear me talking really quickly at any point in the next ten minutes, then you know what's happened and it's, it's kicked in. Wow. So we'll just have to calm me down. Who knows where it's going to go? It's all getting very excited. I'm, and, I'm, I'm, I'm pumped for it. I'm pumped and with regards it. to your pre-match meal, what mm. kind of what what lunch was this? I mean, I'd love to say that it was something that I carefully crafted, but it was actually just leftover curry from last night's takeaway. Oh, still which though. is yeah, it, I, I've got no, no issue with leftover curry. It was absolutely delicious, but there's just um, you know the pressure to kind of eat it once once it's all there, and I just mm. I gorged far too heavily, and I've paid the price. <laughs> So we'll see whether it affects my performance on the show. Indeed, indeed. I'm sure producer Max will be taking note to see whether or not we should be getting back <laughs> on as a result. How about you, Tom? How have you prepared for this? Uh, I, well, I'm I'm sat with a very a snoring staffy by my feet. So if you do hear any any snoring going on, I'm afraid it's, it's not actually <gasps> oh. me. I haven't I haven't fallen asleep. It's it's the old staffy by my feet. That's, Oh, and, and we've lovely. been discussing our England team that we, we want to play tomorrow. So, Okay. All right. Well, don't give anything away just yet because we have got loads coming up. We are talking transfers as Everton splash the cash, as always. And we're looking ahead to the new EFL season, which starts in just eight days' time. But first, we're heading back to that fateful night in Nice in 2016. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Gareth Southgate's England will take to the field for the first time this year when they face Iceland in Reykjavik in the Nations League on Saturday. The two sides haven't met since the Three Lions' humiliating exit from Euro 2016 at the hands of the Icelandics. In one of the darkest days in their recent history, goals from Ragnar Sigurdsson and Kolbein Sigthorsson after a Joel Hart mistake cancelled out Wayne Rooney's opener to send Roy Hodgson's side home. 
Of course, we all do remember that fateful night in Nice. The question is, where did we watch it? Northern Tom, what were you doing? Gorging on a curry? Yeah, no, no curry. I was working very hard. I was uh, in the Time Sports offices and watching it all unfold. And it was one of those strange England nights, wasn't it, where because we took the lead through Wayne Rooney fairly early on, it was kind of, ah, that's, that mm. settles the nerves a little bit. And then, bang, before you know it, it was one all, and it all just fell apart from there. It was um, it, it was a sense of disbelief, I think. I've been in uh, newspaper offices a fair few times when England have crashed out of tournaments, mm-hmm. and I think that's the one that sticks with me in terms of everyone thinking, surely not, surely this isn't happening. I can't yeah. believe this. Uh, that That's the one thing that sticks with me. You know, there's, uh, Often there'll be your cynics, your old-school journos that have seen it all through the years. I can't remember anyone who wasn't just utterly baffled by how bad England were uh, and that they'd been beaten by Iceland. Well, we'll get into it in more detail, I guess, about how low a moment that was. But where were you, Tom? I, I was actually in Paris. Um, oh. I was watching in the in the fan park. We'd, we'd gone over a group of friends. We'd travelled over there for the, the tournament with that sort of usual naive expectation that <laughs> we... English seem to go into with with every tournament, um, and it all ended in uh, despair. Um, it, it's funny though; you you kind of look back at that team now and realise, uh, with hindsight, <laughs> what a sort of jumbled team it is. Um, I mean, uh, that was back when Rooney was kind of playing midfield, and Ali was still sort of back in in, in midfield with Dyer, and and it was all sort of all square pegs and round holes. Um, and it feels like we've we've moved. It, it's incredible because you know after that, the the kind of despair you felt after that, having seen the golden generation move on, it it, it felt like the, we weren't really getting anywhere. And then to have gone, how far they've progressed in four years is just remarkable. Absolutely. Um, I can't, you know what? It it was obviously such a terrible result for England. I can't remember where I was. I think I've just blocked it out, (laughs) which is terrible. I I imagine I was at home, but I just cannot think where I would have been, which is not good at all. Maybe it's because it is one of the lowest moments of being an England fan, seeing us crash out to, to lowly Iceland as it was. But was it the lowest moment? of our lifetime watching England. I think Northern Tom, you sort of alluded to it. Do you think it, it was pretty much the worst of the worst? It's, it's interesting, isn't it? It's probably the worst uh, I've witnessed um, in my time as a journalist. I would say mm. my worst overall was that uh, a group, in similar fashion to Tom with his friends for that tournament, um, a group of pals and I went to South Africa in 2010 uh, and we were in the stadium for the famous nil-nil against Algeria. Oh. Uh, which was about, if you can imagine, you know, the build-up, fresh from university, all that way out there to South Africa, having an exciting time. We'd been to a couple of games beforehand, uh, including France against Uruguay, which I think, if you remember, was also nil-nil and a bit of a letdown. Um, it, so just, you've kind of built up, and it was an evening game as well, so we had the whole day to get ready. And that feeling, both at half-time and then at full-time, was so deflating as a football fan because it was just so uninspired um, and so poor and it was that I remember reading lots about how there were boos and things but to me it wasn't it was just kind of of eerie silence really Um, and there was no real anger it was just completely um, completely deflating so I would pick that as my lowest moment I think Mm. and did you stick around much after that 
in South Africa, yeah. yeah. Well, we actually, we actually went to the Slovenia game uh, not long after that, which we did manage to win, obviously, but it wasn't much better. Um, so uh, that was a pretty low tournament generally. And then we had yeah. to sit in to sit in a bar with a lot of German fans as we were beaten four one in Bloemfontein, um, and watch as you know the, the inevitable happened. Really, it, f- it felt like being put out of our misery slightly. Um, but it was a great it was a great trip. No no regrets, uh, and I'm still friends with all the people I went with. No downside of that, apart from England's performance on the pitch. Yes, yeah, didn't live up to expectations, that for sure. Where would you rank that Iceland, though, defeat, Tom? Well, I think sort of the lowest moment, kind of bizarrely for me, the the 2002 uh, Brazil and the Ronaldinho lob, it, for me, really, it, I think it was just hurt. It was, the, it was the first time I really felt a sense of hurt um, with the optimism around it, but... Uh, in terms of sort of humiliation, nothing could top Iceland. Um, I, ju- I just remember Roy Hodgson being sort of brought out for the press conference afterwards and resigning, and it, it was just sort of excruciating. Um, to, to, and, and of course, all the stats about the size of, of Iceland and the, the kind of community yes. and population there compared to to England and how much money went into it and and the whole the vision of St George's Park not you know coming to fruition we still went a little further down with with the the mess of the Sam Allardyce era the short Sam Allardyce era but it it, it does seem to be, be a point of no return really. I was going to say, can we even call it a Sam Allardyce era? It was that brief. But a lot has changed in four years for England. Hodgson uh, left his role. Then I mentioned there Sam Allardyce, that brief stint. And then step forward, Gareth Southgate, the man who has led England to new heights, including the 2018 World Cup semi-final and the 2019 UEFA Nations League finals. Now, one of the favourites for the rescheduled 2021 European Championships, England head into the Iceland game with a very different outlook compared to 2016. But with competition for places and so much young talent coming through, does Gareth Southgate even know his best 11? Northern Tom, where do we think England's strongest area of the team is? I think it's undoubtedly the forward areas. I think England have become very good at chance creation and also scoring goals. I think... Um, the times we're working on a piece uh, for the coming weekend about how in the last the last calendar year England managed to score 38 goals which is one of their best performances for a long time and I think with the likes of obviously Harry Kane, Raheem Sterling but you then have pressure for places after that Marcus Rashford, Jadon Sancho so much talent coming through in those areas I would say that's by far and away the strongest area um, of the team but I do think it's a really interesting year for Southgate and for England because tournament football is so interesting and so such a challenge for a manager to cultivate a team um, which is a mix of experience and informed players and I think in a weird way this year off might give him a few problems if that make you know just in terms of the players that are coming through in terms of who he might have had in mind to play it had Euro 2020 gone ahead and I think there are a few there are more problems in this team than perhaps um, we're led to believe just in terms of how reasonably successful the last few years have been. I'll ask about those problems in just a moment, but let me see if Tom agrees. Do you think up top is our strongest area of that team? Yeah, for sure. Um, I mean, we we kind of look at 
those players who, especially for the Euros this year, would have been nailed down as starters and probably one of the only sort of maybe three would have been Maguire, Sterling and, and Kane uh, and maybe Trent as well in there. But, but Kane has been the, the kind of mainstay in that team for quite a while. And suddenly there's almost this possibility with Mason Greenwood coming through and the kind of the way in which he, he plays the, the, the modern way in this kind of fluid front, front three that Kane's place is, is, is a little bit uncertain. Um, and that, that, goes to, that just goes to show the, 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 the strength of options that Southgate has up front now. Um, so without doubt, it's our, the strongest position. So lots to be positive about the forward options for Gareth Southgate. Northern Tom, let's talk about those problem areas. What were you alluding to? Centre-back has always been a concern for me for England for a long time, ever since the kind of Sol Campbell, Rio Ferdinand, John Terry era. I think there's been a lot of players who have had a lot of hype around them, have perhaps been transferred to big clubs, whether it's Manchester City during the kind of era of where they were spending, as we've seen with John Stones recently. And I just think even even with Harry Maguire being a £75 million player and captain of Manchester United... I think he is probably our strongest and most experienced centre-back and I don't think he's a world-class or even close to a world-class defender. I think he's a good defender. I think it's something Greg has talked about on the podcast before about how he's not the Virgil van Dyke type defender that Manchester United need. Um, and I think there's a lot of OK players in the centre-back position. Um, I would say that also, in a strange way, despite having quite a lot of players, for me, cent- central midfield is an issue for Southgate because... There are lots of players, your Jack Grealishes, your James Madisons, your Phil Fodens, who are the, you know, Delhi Alley, Alex Oxlade-Chamberlain, lots of kind of attacking-minded central players. And then you kind of really have only, you have Jordan Henderson, who's a Premier League winning captain and incredibly experienced in a defensive role. How do you marry those all together in a in a cohesive central area? I'm not quite sure. So in a weird way, in t- two very different ways, a lack of talent in defence and a lack of clarity in midfield, I would say, are the two areas that I have an issue with. A few headaches then for Gareth Southgate there. Um, I suppose we should ask, Tom, uh, the goalkeeping situation. Is that another headache that Gareth might have? Yeah, uh, I think it's through since 2018. Jordan Pickford seemed to have had that that position settled, you know, it's been it's been his position. And, and again, in a similar way to the way Tom was talking about the likes of Mason Greenwood coming through and Phil Foden and the potential problems that, that Southgate could have over the next year of ch- choosing, he really needs to make sure he knows his goalkeeper. And there are a lot of games to come. So there are quite a few games before the Euros next summer. So he's got time to decide that. The interesting one is is Dean Henderson, really, because he's now left Sheffield United. He's going to stick at, at Man United, and and if he doesn't play, then what happens then? Um, because you've got Nick Pope, who's who's more than able, a very good goalkeeper. I don't think it's Jordan Pickford's position anymore to take. Um, I think it's a, it's a place that's really up for grabs. Um, but I, I agree with with Tom as well on the 
for me, the, the big position is midfield because it's the heartbeat of the team, obviously. Um, but also, it seems the, the, the area where there's been a real opportunity is defensive midfield. They've tried Harry Winks there. I think he played out in Kosovo. They've tried Declan Rice there. They've t- tried Eric Dyer there. And it's never really quite worked. It's never felt that sort of relaxed and and they've never really molded the team together well um and it will be interesting now to see how calvin phillips gets on uh we were, we were talking to him yesterday for a for a sunday piece and and of course he's he's been a championship player and that's meant there's kind of question marks over his his position in the team but it, it looks like he really could be even before making the debut so maybe I'm talking too early here but <laughs> from this last season it looks like he could be the, the solution to that problem. Do you think Tom then that these games could see South Southgate experiment with his first 11 or do you think actually one you should take the Nations League a little bit more seriously than I'm suggesting and also look ahead to the Euros by playing that similar team that he expects to be playing come next summer? I think the aim still needs to be the Euros. Uh, so there's a lot of games um, and I actually almost disagree in a way with Tom in that, that I think the delay to the Euros couldn't really be better for England because it gives time for the likes of Greenwood, Foden and Sancho to, to mature. Um, and it gives time to solve that defensive midfield position, find out whether Calvin Phillips is is the man to hold that role. Um, and, and I think he could do with it because there was a, there was a lot of excitement going into this summer with with England, but the, the competition can only be be a benefit to, to to the team to Southgate in making his decisions. Well, do you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to ask both of you now to be the England boss for a moment. Let's put aside injuries. Let's put aside any off-field issues that have involved some players of late and ask you this simple question. If England have a fully fit squad to pick from, what is their best 11? So, Northern Tom, let's have Team Clark. I might have known you'd ask me to go first now. Of course. Put the pressure on, honestly. Well, I'm expecting I mean, I, big things. I, it's, it's, I found myself compiling this list and being quite excited by all the options there were, and I've ended up with a team that I think is quite defensive and a bit oh. cautious. But oh. the reason being is that I think because I what I said with the um, defensive issues, I, I just can't see playing a back four in the current state uh, as being successful in a major tournament. So I would play a back three. I would have a 3-4-3 three, three formation. Okay. Um, controversially, I would pick Jordan Pickford in goal for the, for the sole reason that I think with that system and with Southgate wanting to play a possession-based game and play the ball out from the back, he is one of the best goalkeepers with the ball at his feet. I would then have a back three of Joe Gomez, Harry Maguire, and I would have Declan Rice in there because I think for all he's been tried as a defensive midfielder, he would be excellent as a ball-carrying central defender, um, which is obviously something we saw in the World Cup with a back three. You need to have defenders who can pass the ball. Uh, I would then have Trent Alexander-Arnold and Ben Chilwell as my fullbacks because I think that would allow them to get forward without the worries of playing in a right-back or a left-back and worrying about the space in behind. And obviously they both have excellent crossing ability and are great on the ball. Uh, and I would have um, Jordan Henderson and Harry Winks in central midfield, which is where the team starts to feel very 
safe and defensive. But I think that has to be your starting point in uh, a big tournament. Henderson's experience and Winks's passing ability. And then I would have Sterling Kane and Rashford as my front three, which means that I've left out basically every single exciting young talent in England. Uh, and I would sh- probably get, have people screaming at the podcast right now about where's Sancho, where's Grealish. But they would be my kind of people I would turn to on the bench and maybe change the system, take out a defender, throw on one of the more attacking midfielders. But I would I would start solid and build from there. So, okay, looking at that that 11 that you've gone for, I suppose mm. one of the biggest changes in terms of a positional change for a player is Declan Rice. Yeah. You know, he's he's played at, at central midfield all season, likely mm. to do the same this season as well. Mm. You think you can just switch him, do you? It's that I think, simple. I think in, in terms of his ability, I think you can see that he's got a very good defensive head on him. And I think in terms of... We saw it a lot with England when they played a back three um, in the World Cup. Quite often, there's lots of statistics around, oh, England defenders are making the most passes. And Well, the reason for that was that they were passing left and right between each other because everyone else was marked. And you then have to have someone who's capable of breaking the lines in midfield, maybe bringing the ball out. Harry Maguire can do it from time to time. Joe Gomez is pretty good on the ball. And I think sitting Declan Rice in there as well, would would just be a good alternative would be a good solution um because as as Tom alluded to the other thing with the system that I've picked is that it takes away that problem of who is your defensive midfielder there isn't one so you don't have that problem anymore um and similarly you also don't have the problem of oh who's your attacking midfielder because there isn't one your threat <laughs> is out wide from the flanks with Trent and Ben Chilwell and then you've got the three three of the most talented uh, forwards uh, in Europe to bang in all the goals and then the rest of the lads will keep it safe and we'll win every game 2-0 I love job, how you just job done. You're, you're basically nullifying the midfield debate don't, don't worry about it we'll bypass that just just leave loads of talent on the bench just in case we need it <laughs> but you know just keep it safe for now that's what I'd go for and are you sticking with the, what Kane as your captain yes I think so I think he's incredibly experienced and I think he gets probably doesn't get the credit he deserves in terms of his game management he's a very clever player if you watch both Tottenham Tottenham in big games, you know he he wins free kicks high up the pitch when they need him to. He's very good at keeping the ball. He's much better on the ball than people give him credit for. I think there was a lot of talk a while back about why is Harry Kane dropping so deep. Well, the reason is he's because he's so good at linking play. Um, and I think him as this, you know as the talisman um, in terms of scoring goals and then also in terms of leading the team uh, is what I would go for. There'll be people screaming right now, Northern Tom, saying, mm. I know he's had a curry in preparation, but has he had a few <laughs> pints to go with that curry no as pints. well? I no can pints. promise you. I can but promise you. It's fully comprehensive, well oh. thought out plan. F- foolproof, I would say. Foolproof. Uh, Tom, is he talking any sense? Are you seeing an issue with this team? Well, I was going to say, Tom should be saying, you're welcome, Gareth. He's just solved that defensive <laughs> midfield position and the centre-back position. So... I hope Gareth's listening in. Exactly. Well, He's actually ringing me now, guys, so I've got to go. I'm off. I'm oh, off. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. He's suddenly just gone, oh, my goodness, where's where's this come from? It's genius. Um, but let's see if Tom can rival that and come up with maybe another solution. What's Team Roddy got for us? Well, I, <laughs> I, I went into this process with huge optimism, thinking how the hell am I going to pick all of these players? And I've come up with a team which in the contrast to Tom I actually am filled with pessimism I still don't think it's going to go that far but it's the best 
that I think we could come up with. Um, oh, you've convinced us already. <laughs> exactly. Yes, and here it comes. Right. Um, I'm I'm going with Dean Henderson in goal. Um, I think he was he was just brilliant last year um, at Sheffield United, and I I still don't actually think he got the credit he deserved. Um, I think he was reliable and he can play with his feet as well. Um, I'm going for my formation, by the way, is four, two, three, one. Um, okay. And the back four is Trent, Alexander Arnold, uh, Joe Gomez, uh, Harry Maguire, and Ben Chilwell. Mm-hmm. Um, and the two in midfield are Henderson and Calvin Phillips. Okay. And Behind Harry Kane in attack is Jaden Sancho, Phil Foden just behind him, and Sterling on the left. And the idea, the idea there is that if it, it, again it's sort of defensive, I mean you've got two sort of defensive-minded midfielders in there. But the idea is if you're against a team like Iceland that you should be beating, then Henderson would slip forward and Foden would be playing. Right, right alongside Kane. It's interesting you've gone for Phillips. And I, and I know, obviously, we've got a whole season to go. So he's got a season to impress us all. But it is a big call, isn't it, to, to have him already in this England side, especially when you consider when Jack Grealish was plying his trade in the championship with Aston Villa. I'm sure Gareth Southgate made it quite clear that it was unlikely he would call him up just because of his exploits in the championship. Yeah, and I think even as well, I think the the, the thing um, Gareth saying about um, if you were if players were in, he would be picking form players, and even though it's an understandable statement to make, it was also um, a bit of a bit of a problem now where Jack Grealish has been one of the most informed players in the Premier League, so has James Madison over the past year. But the thing is, you've kind of got to get players that that fit the system you want to play. And that's what I mean, uh, as you can hear, I'm, I'm quite a big believer in Calvin Phillips being the solution to England's defensive midfield positions. And I, I think he fits in really nicely. It's this absolute renegade move, isn't it? <laughs> I mean, you know, for a start as well, I mean, he'd be eaten alive by the press if he was a real manager. He's walked out and said he doesn't believe in his team from the start. <laughs> I mean, come on, Tom. You know better than anyone else. You're the one always in those press conferences. Half the game is bluffing your way through, surely. You could have yeah, come there was, out. There was There's, no positive spin on this at all. There's definitely I'm, far I'm... too much hesitation around Phil Foden and <laughs> Calvin Phillips for me to believe in them, I'm afraid. No way. Yes, yes. No, I, 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 this is what I'm dreaming a manager will come out and say. I think it's the, the negative negativity that England fans go into tournaments with. <laughs> well, that's fair enough. Um, I'll ask the same question. Kane is your captain? No. Uh, mm. No, no. Um, Jordan Henderson gets it. Right. Um, yeah, uh, I think it's, a, it's quite interesting thing. Kane's, Kane's clearly a leader and this documentary I don't think he's he's the most he, he's a leader on the pitch isn't he um, and I think Jordan Henderson is is probably more your leader all around the the, the, the setup so are, he gets the you, armband are you implying you're not inspired by his dressing room uh, sort of team talks <laughs> I, I don't think he was the star of the documentary <laughs> so far 
Yes, early days. This early is unbelievable. Days. Not only is he picking a load of young kids who've never played before, <laughs> he's killing the confidence of our star striker by taking the armband <laughs> off him. Danny this Ings is, is on his way in. This is unbelievable. Oh. He's dropping Harry Kane. It's, I mean, to be fair, Tom, you you far more storylines coming from your tenure as England manager than there is mine. I'll, put it that, I'll give you that. <laughs> That is true. We'd get a lot more drama with, with Tom, that's Definitely. for sure. Um, just lastly, before, before we move on, I suppose I should have asked you, Northern Tom, what about subs? If, who are you looking to on the bench that could change things up? And if things aren't going quite well, who are you going to say, right, you're the one to, you're the one to be the game changer? Well, I think this is where I, I can hopefully win back a few fans who have been angry at me <laughs> leaving out the you know all the exciting young players because, say, things were, weren't going our way I think my formation and the team that I've picked allows to change to a 4-3-3 where you would lose one of those three centre-backs or perhaps you'd lose one of the two midfielders and push Declan Rice further forward and bring on an attacking player of which there would be many, James Madison, Oxlade-Chamberlain, Deli Alley, um, into that kind of attacking midfield role to mm-hmm. to support and play off Harry Kane in a central area. That That would be my kind of both a tactical change and a personnel change and as well you know, if, if if Raheem Sterling or Marcus Rashford aren't doing the business, twenty minutes of Jaden Sancho is going to scare the life out of any fullback at any level. So that's that's that they would be my tactical changes I'd have in mind. And what about you, Tom? You mentioned Danny Ings. Is he someone you think could be uh, be someone that you could bring on to to change things if needed? I'd probably go for Mason Greenwood instead. Really, if I'm going to make if I'm going to make one change, yeah, that sort of uh, youthful optimism. Um, He's probably not quite <laughs> quite old enough to to have the the pr- as much pressure on his shoulders. Um, and by the time Calvin Phillips has let me down and he hasn't been the solution to the depth defensive midfield <laughs> position, I could hook him off and send on Greenwood to sort us out. Okay, all right. Well, well, you haven't got long to find out if Gareth Southgate is listening to you both and uh, which team he puts out. You never know; he could surprise us. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at PlushCare.com slash weight loss. That's PlushCare.com slash weight loss plushcare.com slash weight loss as paul joyce writes in the times today everton's overhaul of their midfield has gathered pace with james rodriguez and alan set to undergo medicals plus a deal struck with watford for abdullah decore the trio are expected to cost a combined 60 million pounds initially as the owner farhad mashiri backs carlo ancelotti in the transfer market Rodriguez arrived in London yesterday before heading to Merseyside for a medical after an agreement in the region of 20 million was struck with Real Madrid for Colombia's 2014 World Cup star. A three-year deal has been prepared that would make him Everton's highest paid player on about £140,000 a week. Rodriguez played under Angelotti at Real Madrid and Bayern Munich, whilst Alain has previously worked with the Italian at Napoli. Mashiri's ambition for Everton has been made further evident by that deal that was struck with Watford for Decore, with an initial fee understood to be below £20 million. So £60 million is what it seems as though he has spent on these three players. Is that a real statement of intent from Everton, Tom? 
It is, though we've seen these sort of statements of intent before from Everton, haven't we? I mean, 2018 when Richarlison came in and Yerry Mina and Luca Dina for, I think it was around 75 million that year and, and they finished eighth. I think the interesting thing this year will be that Carlo Angelotti's in, in charge and, and Everton have always had these sort of up-and-coming progressive managers and Angelotti's the guy who's been there and done it and it's quite clear that he's told these players, uh, that told the squad so far, that it's really on them. There's nowhere to hide anymore. He's had the success in Spain, in Germany, in France, here, and it, and it's on them. Um, I think I think that Decore was always going to be heading to to Everton, and I think that that midfield he'll he'll really strengthen the midfield. And and Ancelotti teams are known for their resilience. Um, the Rodriguez one is is really interesting as well because Angelotti's worked with him for uh, at both Bayern and at Real. So there's clearly there's clearly a view that he still has the potential. It's just interesting that we still sort of view him as that kind of 20, as you said, Matt, that 2014 uh, World Cup star. He's still remembered for a goal that happened six years ago, isn't he? He certainly is. And as you say, Ancelotti obviously trusts him, sees something in him for as to why he wants to bring him to Everton. Northern Tom, should Everton fans then be excited at the prospect of seeing Rodriguez at, at Goodison or as I've just mentioned, as Tom has also just said as well, is he sort of still living off past reputations? I think if I was an Everton fan, I'd just be constantly slightly either bemused or baffled by everything that goes on at my club off the pitch. Even all these players that we talk about, and Tom mentioned the signings a few years ago, but it's been happening every summer. You can go back to the Davy Klassen era with Ronald Koeman and 160 million or something they spent that summer. Sent Tosin... Theo Walcott, uh, Michael Keane, you know, all these players. I can't remember, other than maybe Decore. Decore for 20 million makes me go, okay, that's a that's a good solid signing. Every other signing that Everton have made always kind of slightly makes me go, really? In one way or another, either really they're going to Everton, as in with James Rodriguez, or really Everton are paying that much for that guy. And it just never really feels cohesive there doesn't seem to be any kind of coherent strategy it's all which obviously comes with changing the manager as much as they do I mean I I, I would I would be excited ish about James Rodriguez but as you know as you guys have just said I'd, I've seen him a couple of times in the Champions League I thought he looked okay I don't think he's suddenly going to change Everton into a Champions League qualifying team and I also think he's he plays in a role that's very tricky in modern football to get to get the best out of um in that he's in this you know number 10 attacking midfield role where it's a little bit similar to the conversations we were having a few seasons ago about strikers and the number 9 role and all oh, the number 9 roles dead and you know Pep Guardiola make, making Sergio Aguero work much harder and as i just alluded to Harry Kane dropping deeper and things that number 10 role you know if you look at someone like Mesut Ozil it it just it doesn't seem to me to fit that well in modern football, and I don't know. Maybe Ancelotti's going to you know go go a bit old school and say you know okay you can just come up with magic, Decore and a few others behind you they they'll do all the running and all the work. But I mean it's a hell of a job to turn Everton into a kind of you know cohesive coherent team. I think. 
Mm. I, I suppose, though, Tom, with Rodriguez, when you consider his his known abilities, um, it didn't work out for him at Real Madrid, but perhaps that is because of the system. And maybe at Everton, Ancelotti will adopt or adapt, I should say, the system to get the best out of him. Yeah, and we do see uh, quite a few players go to Real Madrid and struggle with having the spotlight on them. Um, I've only seen it this last year with Eden Hazard. He had his injuries, but I, I think he finished the season with just one goal. Um, and those Bayern Munich always seem to have these these funny um, agreements with big clubs where they loan their players like Phil Coutinho um, over the last couple of years. So I think he's a player who probably, despite being 29, he's, he's probably still got a point to prove. And I wonder whether Angelotti is planning on feeding into that, you know, tapping into that. And you see him as a guy to build his team around because mm. they have they have lacked that creative player a little bit. Um, the sort of link from, from midfield to attack. But I, I think Tom was spot on about the sort of Everton being a club that, that you, you always look at deals and, and think whether they've sort of overspent them. I mean, only last year, remember, it, it, when Iwobi went for 34 million, you thought, wow, um, a player who's sort of surplus to requirements at Arsenal and, and they're spending 34 million on him. So they... they, they I don't. I think that's probably why this doesn't necessarily feel like a, a signal of intent because it's not hugely out of the ordinary. Well, Ancelotti raised a few eyebrows when he signed a four and a half year deal at Everton in December last year. He's had little to spend before this window at Everton, having come from clubs where he had seemingly endless pots of money and was able to sign the likes of Fernando Torres at Chelsea, Gareth Bale at Real, and as we mentioned, of course, James Rodriguez at the Bernabeu as well. Did Everton have to splash the cash to keep hold of Ancelotti Northern, Tom? I think undoubtedly, they've obviously I remember the talks in order to get him to the club. They were fairly protracted. I remember thinking, is this ever going to actually happen? Um, and you would imagine part of that was get him getting reassurances that a manager of his stature to go to, and I don't mean this as in any way to insult Everton fans, but you know the guys won European Cups with AC Milan and, with, and has won a lot of trophies with big clubs. He's got a hell of a task on. So I think they probably would have had to promise to spend a fair amount of money and let him buy the players he wants. So you would you would at least say that with the signings we're talking about, you would imagine that they are coming from Ancelotti. Go and get me this guy, this guy, and this guy. That's that has to be the hope because at least then there is a bit of coherent uh, thinking behind it. So yeah, and I wouldn't be surprised if there wasn't a bit more spending going on because. As I say, as we've both said, sixty million isn't that much money for Everton in recent okay. in recent times. Everton haven't finished in the top four since two thousand and five under David Moyes, and haven't finished in the top six since twenty fourteen under Roberto Martinez. Recently in the league, it's been nothing for Toffees fans to get that excited about. They finished twelfth last season. Previously, it was eighth. Twenty seventeen eighteen season, it was also eighth. Uh, marginally better in 16-17 when it was 7th and actually it was 11th in 2015-16. So, Tom, if they spend £60 million or more in this window, adding to their current squad, we've already know that Mashiri doesn't mind spending. He has spent a fortune. Should they be making top six this season? 
Mm, no, no, I don't think so. I think it's still a, a still an incredibly difficult task um, to to get in there. Uh, I think they still kind of lack um, firepower as well. Obviously, Richarlison's done really well, and Angelotti's really getting the best out of Dominic Calvert Lewin last year. Um, but I don't think that. 60 million will, or those two transfers will necessarily change Everton's fortune. But I, I hope that's wrong. I really, uh, we, we, we saw in 2014 the potential of James Rodriguez and it'd be great to, to see that kind of back again. And, and I think it really would um, transform the way Everton play uh, and make them a real sort of power again in, 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 in the Premier League. But the teams above them, I mean, I, I, I only see the teams getting stronger and, and around them as well. You know, Wolves last year, they ended up finishing seventh. And I, I don't think they were the, the seventh best team in the, in the Premier League. I think they were, they were higher than that. Uh, Leicester are going to get stronger. Chelsea have spent so much. Tottenham, Mourinho's team, are, are, he's slowly getting his team together. It's going to be hard to, to, uh, to break into it, break into that. Um, and I think they, I think they need to spend a little bit more. I'd like to see a, a, a another striker in there. So, Tom there is saying they're not going to finish above Wolves. Um, there have been other teams around them who are strengthening, of course. Uh, Northern Tom, when you consider perhaps. I don't know, maybe domestically we could say Arsenal have been one of the most successful this season when they've won the FA Cup and they've also won the Community Shield, if you want to include that as a trophy. Will Everton finish above a team like Arsenal? Not a chance. I think if if Everton finished 10th and finished the season with a kind of clear style of play, have maybe cleared out some of the players in the squad who just don't work for Ancelotti and, as Tom said, have maybe found a way of scoring goals and as you know, I, we talk so much of it on the podcast in this season about successful teams have a clear style of play, a clear ethos, and it runs right through the team. You can interchange players in positions, Sheffield United, Wolves, all the way up to Liverpool. They have a style, they have a system, they have a set way of playing, and they have consistency. If Everton can get that and finish 10th, that's a pretty good season for them, I think. But the unfortunate thing is that with Ancelotti and with the you know, super signings they're making comes an element, you know, delusions of grandeur. I think they they are a real mess. I think Everton, and there's a lot of work to do before they can start thinking about the top six. In my opinion, well, obviously Everton fans won't want to be hearing that. Finishing tenth is the best they can do under your eyes, Northern Tom. What would be a successful season for Everton, Tom? I think a very successful season would be getting the Europa League. Um, as I say, that would be surpassing those teams like Wolves, like Tottenham um, for, from last season. I, I'd, I'd also really like, I, I always think this is a, perhaps nowadays this is a bit of a patronising thing to say, but I'd love to see them go on a, go on a cup run um, because it sort of suggests that they, they might not be able to achieve much in the league. But I'd love to see Everton go on a cup run and I do think, you know, I do think that they they do need another attacker. But the progress of Calvert Lewin over the last year, if they can, if Angelotti can continue that, they'll be they can be a very good team. 
I think they they have to be top ten. I I don't think they can be in the bottom ten. I think Tom's just struck on an interesting point there about the cup runs and how it's almost become a little bit dismissive and. You know these teams with these big owners have such aspirations of European football, whereas it, it comes back to something again that I've brought up before about what what is your club like, what is your aim, what what should you be striving to achieve, and as Tom said, it'd be great if they could actually have a cup run and have some cup success, because you don't really see that anymore from these teams like Everton. They 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 have such uh, goal lofty goals that are perhaps beyond what they can actually achieve and it then ends up having actually a detrimental effect to their season because as a fan you're constantly wanting something that you're not getting and it it would just be I think if they had a season where as I say they finished 10th but focused on a cup run in one of the two domestic cups they'd win a trophy and Ancelotti is known for winning trophies and that that would be incredibly refreshing but I think part of the other thing they have to do is work out what they want to be because as you said Nat and not since David Moyes have we known what what Everton are? I've, it's been a long time since you knew what, what they were about as a club, both on and off the pitch. It's been some time since they've won a cup, hasn't it, as well? You've got to go back to, what, 1995 for that FA Cup win when Paul Rideout scored for them against Manchester United. For the last time, they've won a domestic trophy. In fact, the, the last trophy uh, overall as well. So, yes, I'm sure a cup run would be fantastic for them. Now, incredibly, we are just eight days away from the start of the EFL season. Watford will get us underway on Friday night at Vicarage Road as they look to bounce straight back up to the Premier League and they face Neil Warnock's Middlesbrough in this season's curtain raiser. Last season wasn't short of drama, court cases, administrations and calculators at the ready for working out weighted points per game. Hopefully, we'll have a full campaign this time with the possibility of crowds joining in the action as we head through the season. But what are we most looking forward to? And who are our ones to watch for the months ahead? Now, Tom, you and I are going to focus on the championship, whilst Northern Tom, I think, is going to be helping us by delving a, bit, a little bit deeper into Leagues 1 and 2. So let's start in the championship. And Tom, tell us, who's on your radar? Well, I think the, the, the team I'm going to pick out will be Bournemouth, um, just because I think it's going to be fascinating to see how, how they handle going down. Um, I remember talking to, to someone recently at Norwich about how they view their kind of target and their target is to be in the top 26 teams in the country. That's what they want to be. So, you know, you can be a yo-yo club, but it's not a catastrophe every time you go down. And I think we've seen that in the way that they've they they recruited last year. They didn't go massive in the market like Fulham did a, did a couple of years ago. Um, they're just they're just a steady team, and the idea is to to bring through players like Todd Cantwell, like Emmy Buendia, who they they can sell on, and they can retain that that place in the top twenty six teams in the country. And the issue is that when then you get a team like Bournemouth go down, and you just you you can see Norwich doing that, but it, it's really uncertain as to where Bournemouth are going to be because they've lost the man who was the heartbeat of that club and the problem is that we've seen at the likes of Arsenal what that what happens when someone who controls everything that goes on um, disappears and now it's Jason Tindall's chance to shine 
after sort of being in the shadow of Eddie Howe for so many years. And how how will he cope once the carcass has sort of been picked apart? Because um, Nathan Aki's already gone, as we expected. We all know the story of Ryan Fraser. I mean, he, it felt like he'd been gone for a long, long time. It feels like there's quite a few players like Callum Wilson who will be gone and, and want out of there. So it, it's going to be a massive season and you don't want to see the collapse in the same way as happened with Sunderland. OK, so Bournemouth is your team to watch in the uh, championship. I, do you know what? I really sat down and I really thought about this and... and... I think there's loads of teams that are going to be really intriguing when it comes to this season. But one team I'm specifically looking forward to to seeing how they've changed is Huddersfield. Now, obviously, they and a, a team that, as you know, Northern Tom had your former boss uh, in charge, the Cowley brothers. Mm. But all of a sudden, they were sort of sacked and nobody really saw that coming, having not been in the job very long. There was a talk of a change of direction for Huddersfield. And they're kind of going down the tried and tested method of turning to a number two that uh, that we all know in terms of a manager that's been successful. So obviously they had David Wagner, who had been the number two to Jurgen Klopp. And this time around, they've gone for the former Leeds assistant, Carlos Corberan, who obviously worked with Marcelo Bielsa. So I'm really interested to see how much of a change Huddersfield are going to go through. Is he going to bring in those Bielsa tactics that we know that what he likes to do in training, how he really works those players? Is he going to do the same with Huddersfield? And are they going to improve on what was a really dismal season? I mean, finishing 18th, they only really secured their safety latter in the latter part of the season. So Huddersfield are a team... I don't know. There's just something about them. I'm really intrigued. I don't think they should have finished as low as they did, considering their Premier League pedigree. And I just want to see how much of a turnaround it will be. That's a team I'm just looking out for. I'm intrigued by them. Kudos for not mentioning Brentford Nat yet. I don't know whether you're no. going to bring them up. Well, I, Are you I deliberately can't. keeping quiet about I have them? to keep quiet about keep them, Keep them out I? of the attention. Exactly. Keep them out of the spotlight. I don't sign any of our players. Them. Yeah, exactly. Keep away. They're no good. They they couldn't get us up. Don't sign them. What are, you, what are we bothering with them for? Um, but yeah, another team also, I think you can't now discount Middlesbrough because of Neil Warnock. We know the great success that he has in taking teams up. So he's another team. I just am looking forward to seeing how well they do. That might, be, might not be the most pleasant of watches. But then again, one team, I'm hoping, I'm kind of hoping that he may have gone away from the game for a little while and decided to change his style, but I'm guessing he won't. And I'm just not looking forward to seeing Birmingham, I have to say, with Aitor Karanka at the helm. I've talked about this before. I just find Aitor Karanka's tactics to be very boring, very anti-football. So I just don't think I'm going to look forward to watching Birmingham in action, I have to say. Is that a bit cruel? Is that a bit mean? No, it's exactly what we want to hear. We want decisive (laughs) opinions. But come on, you must be... Are you nervous quietly confident about the coming um, season as a Brentford fan new stadium exciting times yes well do you know I went to the new stadium I was very fortunate to go to the new stadium on Tuesday with our first ever game there it was a friendly against Oxford ended 2-2 I was wowed by the stadium I have to say the pictures don't do it justice but I, I'm so excited now about the new stadium um, obviously as with so many of these teams it all comes down down, down to transfer activity I know we brought in Ivan Tony, who's got a great record most recently at Peterborough. Um, 
that obviously to me was an indicator that Ollie Watkins is probably on the move. I'd mm. rather he stayed. It'd be great to have two informed strikers and be able to mix things up a little bit when you consider how condensed this season is going to be and how relentless it's going to be. Um, but I think we have to assume that he's going, probably Ben Rama will be going as well. So there's going to be a few shakeups, but ultimately we know how we play our football. We know our recruitment team are so good at bringing in ready-made replacements to just get on with the action. Um, and, and, and I'm just hoping that you know, maybe we'll we'll do it this time. Playoffs haven't been our friend. We've got one of the worst records, probably the worst record now after our latest defeat. But maybe it's a new stadium and it's just a, a clean slate for us. That's what I'm going for, Northern Tom. That's Good. what I'm, I'm glad saying. to hear it. I'm glad to hear it. So that's the championship covered. What about stories that you can tell us from Leagues 1 and 2? Well, I would just say I'm going to quickly give a quick, very quick shout out for Coventry, who I'm very yes. excited about seeing in yes. the championship next season. They were brilliant in League One. They play fantastic football and they've just signed Tyler Walker, a striker from Nottingham Forest, who I think is one of the most underrated talents. And he's been stuck at Forest and on loan. Uh, he was actually on loan with Lincoln, unbelievably. Uh, shocking that I'm mentioning him. Um, but he's a real <laughs> talent and I think they could uh, surprise a few people this season in the championship. But in League One... I am slightly worried about Gillingham. I've got to say, I'm not a massive fan of them or their manager, Steve Evans. Uh, I don't think I'm alone in that, but they have made some very impressive signings, uh, including pinching a midfielder called Kyle Dempsey from Fleetwood, who's very talented, and they've just got a very strong, very robust team. A little bit like, you know, you'd imagine Middlesbrough and Neil Warnock in the Championship. I wouldn't be surprised if they kind of bruised and battered their way to a top uh, top seven or six position. But the team I'm going to pick out are Blackpool um, under Neil Critchley, who's a coach who came from Liverpool and took over yes. during last season. They've made a couple of interesting signings, including uh, young strikers Jerry Yates and uh, Bez Lubala, uh, who were 23-22, both scored goals further down the league's. And I think he, you can just tell he's trying to build something a little bit like what we've talked about before with how Brentford have that system of cre create a style of play, bring players in who are young, hungry, build them up, sell them on. Obviously, Blackpool have got new ownership now. I just think it could be a really interesting season to see how they do. And I wonder if they might surprise a few because, again, in League One, the pressure is all on Sunderland, Portsmouth uh, and Oxford, who uh, f missed out in the playoffs last season and who have just lost Rob Dickey, their captain and central mm -hmm. defender, to QPR, which is a big loss for them. So I think it's an interesting league because the pressure is on those big teams at the top and the likes of Gillingham and Blackpool might surprise a few. Um, and having said, just to say, having watched Oxford on Tuesday... We Brentford were the better team and I know obviously there are lots of changes that you make so things do change in a, in a mm. pre-season friendly but I was quite impressed with Oxford and the style of football that they play and, and felt obviously they were unlucky in a sense to, to miss out on going up mm. um, and they actually did give us a good game towards the latter part of that game on, on Tuesday so I, I, like you I'm intrigued to see how they get on Yeah and um, in League 2 I think it, to me this season in League 2 is all about Salford City they had last season they've spent so much money I mean you know we've talked a lot about Lionel Messi and all those kind of spending but comparatively they spent a lot of money the turnover of players they've had in the last 18 months is extraordinary I mean they've you know they've took a few players from Lincoln halfway through the season some of our experienced players presumably offering them more money uh, who they now don't have anymore that you know the sheer volume of players they've had in order to try and get that next level that next push uh, for a promotion 
I think the most interesting thing they've done this summer, as well as signed a lot of experienced players, is that they signed someone who, strangely enough, is called Tom Clark. He was a former Preston captain and centre-back. And I think if I could say anything in relation to Lincoln's title win, what we did when we came up from League Two was that we managed to persuade Jason Shackle, an incredibly experienced former Premier League championship defender, probably with a big wedge of cash to come and play in League Two, um, and he was such an important fa- factor in uh, winning the league. And I wouldn't be surprised if having someone of Tom Clark's experience and uh, pedigree at that level makes a real difference for Salford. Um, I'd just give a little shout out too to Exeter, who have some exciting players, including uh, a winger called Randell Williams, who I wouldn't be surprised to see climbing the leagues over the next coming years. And what about Lincoln, your beloved Lincoln, or how are they going to finish? Well, you kept quiet until I asked you, so <laughs> yeah, I was, I was doing see? exactly the same. I mean, so it's obviously a very interesting season for us. As you mentioned, we lost uh, the Cowleys halfway through last year. Michael Appleton came in and is unashamed in being the complete opposite of the Cowley brothers in terms of style, in terms of recruitment. He wants to bring in, as we've discussed before with lots of other clubs, kind of similar to the Brentford model. He did it at Oxford play a certain way, bring in players that fit that, passing the ball out the back, much to my dad's disgust at times when our centre-back can't pass it 20 yards to the right-back. But there's been a lot of change at the club over the last six months or so. We've brought in a lot of these kind of, you know, 22, 23-year-old players from uh, Scotland, Ireland, from around the lower leagues. It's it it could go either way. It really could. But I'm excited, and I've just you know as we as you said with going back to Brentford, if if I can get back to Sinsel Bank at some point this season, I'll be delighted. Even if we mm. get beat six nil, it'd just be nice to be back in there watching us. Yeah, I think ultimately that's what we all want, isn't it? Fans mm. getting back into stadiums as soon as it is safe to do so. That is it for now. Many thanks to the Toms. Remember to subscribe to the Times and the Sunday Times for award-winning journalism on every platform. It's just a pound a week for an eight-week trial. Search the Times subscription for more information. Have a good weekend. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. If you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. Use the Stamps.com mobile app to mail everything you need to keep your business running with up to 89% off USPS and UPS. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Use code PROGRAM for a special offer. That's Stamps.com, code PROGRAM.